Hello, my name is Sam Clements, and welcome to The Love of Cinema, a Picturehouse podcast proudly supported by Kia, powering independent cinema. Welcome to our August edition of the show. Ah, oh, we're so excited to be back for August. I think a lot of people were probably very aware of some of the films in July. Barbie opened on the 21st of July, for example. Oppenheimer also opened that same day. The phenomenon that was Barbenheimer was real in cinemas. Picturehouse had their busiest weekend ever, ever, <laughs> on the 21st to the 22nd, 23rd of July. Busier. Picturehouse has been trading since 1989. Busier than every Harry Potter. Busier than every Lord of the Ring. Busier than every Star War. James Bond. Avatar. It was a phenomenal weekend. Thank you to everyone who came out. Thank you for bearing with us. If you had to queue, there may well have been a queue uh, going into screens or, or at the kiosk, but you could probably see the cinema teams around you were working super hard to make sure everybody could get in, have a good time, and then clean up uh, when everybody left. Uh, it was it was, it was was really phenomenal. It was so you know, exciting to see. I think we've had some really great weekends since the pandemic. Uh, you know, Some amazing films have opened, but nothing really uh, quite like Barbie and Oppenheimer uh, together. And two fantastic films. Hopefully you've you've seen both. If you haven't seen both yet, uh, you've only seen one. Maybe complete the Barbenheimer set. If you haven't seen either yet, because maybe it's too busy, uh, that's okay. The films will will stay on into August, and I do recommend seeing both on the big screen. Oppenheimer is so spectacular and has an amazing soundtrack which is sort of made to be watched you know in in that big screen environment and barbie is so great with a crowd uh hopefully yeah do go and see it with an audience it's a fun time anyway we're dwelling in the past let's not dwell in the past guys let's look to the future so my job really on this podcast is to introduce the show and introduce myself. I think I've done a little bit of that. I've got one final piece of admin though, uh, and that is to talk about what we are about to listen to on the podcast. Every episode of The Love of Cinema, we are joined by two new guest film critics, and uh, I'm, I'm really thrilled actually with the, uh, the pair uh, that we have for August. We've got Anna Bogutskaya, a fantastic film critic, broadcaster, writer her new book unlikable female characters is out now and it's a it's a marvelous read highly highly recommend checking that out uh, that's just out now but should be available in all good bookshops anna's also currently standing in for commode and or mayo <laughs> mark commode or simon mayo on commode mayo's take uh, anna is the guest film critic on commode mayo's take standing in for mark commode in fact uh, and she has her own podcast also the final girls and and is on so many other shows she's a really wonderful film personality who can lend herself to so many different types of movies and i'm really excited to show our august films uh, to anna to talk about on this show and anna will not be alone anna will be joined by uh, podcaster uh, comedian connor ratliff who hosts an amazing podcast one of my favorite podcasts called dead eyes i uh, would highly recommend that uh, connor is also part of the george lucas talk show an improv show which are doing their first show in edinburgh uh, if you are around uh, in edinburgh in august at the edinburgh fringe uh, do look up the baron and the junk dealer um, it's going to be great and connor um, is starring in that uh, okay, so we've got Anna, we've got Connor. What are we going to be talking about? Well, we're going to talk about a hand-picked selection of films uh, coming to your local Picturehouse Cinema in August. And, uh, and it's not everything. There's too many films coming out in August. But we're going to talk about four. I think four is a good amount for the podcast. And we've got a special guest, which I spoke to uh, a few weeks ago when he was in town. Um, so we'll get to that and all that stuff later on. But first of all, let's listen to what Anna and Connor thought of the brand new uh, British uh, indie drama Scrapper. Ali! George? You playing out? Uh, hi, that's my bike. We were just making sure that all of these bikes were road safe. Oh, yours isn't, by the way. So, Anna, what did you think of Scrapper? Well, I've been a, a really big fan of Charlotte Regan's short films for years now. Uh, so I was really greatly anticipating her debut feature, Scrapper. I was really, um, really proud, really happy to see her premiere 
in Sundance. And I I loved it. I I really had all the faith in her abilities as a director. She I know she's particularly talented at directing actors. And I think she managed just to get a really great performance out of Harris Dickinson. It was really nice. I know he's had quite meaty starring roles already. It's really nice to see him do something a bit more lighthearted, um, but equally weighty in a way as the young dad mm-hmm. and i know it's going to get compared to after sun a lot because of just the the basic ingredients of the story being about the relationship between a young dad and his sort of preteen daughter but it's a very different flavor it's a very different kind of atmosphere that she builds and i was particularly a fan of her magic realism touches what about you what did you think of it uh, i really loved it um what I was struck by was there. there's immediately, everything about it felt authentic to me. Like the the performances, there are certain kinds of uh, moments when you're watching a film when you realize that we're used to a certain level of, of sort of artifice, even in very good acting in film. And then you'll suddenly see something and you're like, this almost feels like you're watching a documentary in, in, at times, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. it, which it's, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, it's a film that has things that clearly are not, you know, it's not like a, a mock documentary or something, but the tone of the acting feels just very grounded and natural, even when uh, the film is being clever, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's really astute. And and I really, I really do hope that audiences discover it on the big screen, mainly for, mainly for the performances, really. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it has the kind of rhythm. I mean, it's first of all, you know, I, I've been seeing a lot of things recently and things written about people talking about wh- how movies are too long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's become people getting the glut of like every mm-hmm. movie inching towards three hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's something very refreshing about how much you can accomplish in a, a very brisk running time. It doesn't, it's not a fast paced film. It takes its time and yet it's still, you know, well under 90 minutes. I know. Um, which I think is, is really refreshing because you realize that like a short film is still, you can still get lost in it very quickly. It's not like uh, you blink and it's over, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's, a haunted quality to this movie where you, you there are times when the 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 characters are sort of getting lost in their own thoughts and it it has a, a really unexpected pacing in places you know that's quite interesting i about the pacing specifically i was really pleasantly surprised that it really avoids all the pitfalls of sort of you know british kitchen sink dramas um especially mm-hmm. with charlotte's kind of direction and those elements of whimsy that really put me yeah. in the in really in the headspace of the young protagonist and not just from the outside looking at her life. And it definitely does not, it's always a bit weird talking about what a film doesn't do versus what it does. But I think there is such Mm -hmm. a specific set of expectations for uh, dramas, especially films about children, especially about children dealing with sort of really big emotions or really big upheavals in their lives, like the character Mm -hmm. in Scrapper is. And instead of it being very much about her grief, which it is, but it's not... It's not the focal point. Uh, it's very much about the mm-hmm. coping mechanisms as seen through her perspective. And it's not not dour at all. Yeah. And and there are there are a number of moments in this movie that I feel like are the execution level is sort of like uh it's very high to be able like this. I'm thinking of the scene where the dad says, let's play a game where we uh we pretend we look at two people, we pick two people and then we do their voices and we mm-hmm. pretend we're, we make up their conversation from afar. And it's, it feels very real and natural and not like it was written by a writer and then memorized by two actors. Absolutely. Uh, and to have characters being clever and funny in a way that feels like this is how real, clever, funny people are in real life. Let's go somewhere new. See worlds we've never seen before, so that we can feel inspired. Whether you're sitting in a cinema 
or in one of our cars, inspiration comes when we feel something new. That's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia, proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia, movement that inspires. Well, there you go. Scrapper is in cinemas on the 25th of August, and it's a, it's a really moving film, as, as the guys were saying. It's also under 90 minutes long, 82 minutes long, a directorial debut there from Charlotte Reagan, 82 minutes long. Uh, you love to, hey, you love to see it. Uh, right, let's move on to our next film. Uh, something a little bit different, but something I'm so excited to see. I haven't seen this one yet. A film called Joyride, which opened Gangbusters in the US, is now coming to cinemas in the UK from the 4th of August. I am so excited to see this. Uh, let's see what Connor and Anna made of it. Best friends trip. This is going to be iconic. Do it like that. You do understand this is a work trip for me. Audrey, I got you. Look at me. You're thinking about a dick. Damn it, you're right. Look at me, look at me, look at me now. I love a grand adventure. I heard that if you keep up with Chinese businessmen, they respect you more. So I haven't had a chance to watch Joyride yet, but I know that you have. What did you make of it? Well, it's very funny. I... <laughs> There's, it's an interesting thing because I'm even guilty of this, you know, in, in terms of, you know, people talking about, well, you know, whether you need to see this on the big screen. And, you know, there's been so many movies that have gone straight to streaming mm -hmm. in recent years. And people say, well, you want to see big spectacle on the big screen. And I think I've fallen into that trap, too. And comedies are one of the, like, especially big joke comedies where they're, set pieces come sort of like fast and furious through the movie are such a different experience in a theater with an audience. Mm -hmm. it, it's a, this is a different movie. If you watch it on your own on a device, uh, not that it's not still funny, but it's, you know, it's such a different thing to have the experience. If there are moments in this movie that the entire movie theater is, is, uh, laughing so hard and it really, I like the movie. I think it's a very, it's about two, uh, it, the movie starts with two best friends who you have um, the uh, Chinese-American couple who are approached uh, at, on the playground by a couple of white parents who want to ask about their daughter. And it's because they have an adopted uh, daughter that, I don't want to give too many spoilers about the movie because part of it, the, the the center of the movie is these two girls become friends because they're the only two Asian American kids on the playground, basically. And mm -hmm. the the white adoptive parents are just desperate for their daughter to connect with, to make a friend. And then these two grow up, and one of them is a very successful uh, in business, and the other is sort of like. Um, a troublemaker, rule breaker, still trying to find themselves as an artist. And they end up going on a trip to China that is for business, but the sort of uh, ne'er-do-well friend is sort of encouraging, like, you should use this as an opportunity to find uh, your birth mother, to find your birth parents. And it ends up being like a, a very crazy, you know, a very crazy, big laugh sort of uh, road movie that ends up being very, like, it, it builds the groundwork for, there's like some surprisingly touching moments, uh, particularly toward the end of the movie, that are very well earned. That's really uh, encouraging to hear. Lot. Yeah, I'm really excited to see it yeah. on, the, on the big screen. Not necessarily, like you say, for the spectacle, but I find with comedies as well as with horror films, the contagious mm -hmm. element is the thing yeah. that I find most, most thrilling. Like if something is landing well with an audience, people are giggling, people are roaring uh, with laughter, that just it really sticks to you as well. And even if you were only so-so on a film, then you just are swept along with a vibe. At least I am. Yeah, and there are movies, there are movies that, regardless of their quality, just don't play on a, on a home mm. on a home screen the same way. Because even if you have a big crowd of friends over, there's a social dynamic in a movie theater uh, ideally, unless you have people in the audience who are, you know, uh, uh, more disruptive than they're supposed to be, 
often when you're watching a movie, even if you watch a movie at home with a big group of people, it's not the same as being in a packed theater because your friends will feel more comfortable talking. You'll feel more comfortable talking to your friends. There's something about the social contract of going to see a movie comedy where any kind of laughter is fine. And, but otherwise you're there to watch the movie. You know, it's not the same. There's just like comedies need to be seen in a theater with a, with a, with an audience, with a crowd of strangers. Uh, it's such a social aspect of, of that genre. Couldn't agree more, really. And now we have our special guest for the episode. We've got uh, director Justin Simeon, whose new film, Haunted Mansion, based on the popular Disneyland uh, theme park ride, uh, is in cinemas uh, from the 11th of August. Uh, I did this interview. Justin was so nice uh, to talk to. I've actually, Picture House released Justin's second feature film, Bad Hair. Uh, it came out just around the pandemic, however, so it didn't really get a proper run in cinemas, but it's such a good film. would highly recommend seeking out Bad Hair and, of course, Haunted Mansion, uh, which is one of the big blockbusters coming to cinemas this summer. The cast is stacked. Lakeith Stanfield, Tiffany Haddish, Danny DeVito, Owen Wilson. Uh, it's uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. Uh, a few surprise cameos in there, too. Uh, so, so, yeah, so this is me talking to Justin Simeon when he was in town a few weeks ago uh, for The Haunted Mansion. Hello, Justin. Um, Hello. Lovely to meet you. Thank you for joining us on the Picture House podcast today. Thanks for having me. Um, it's always exciting when, you know, there's a big new film coming to cinemas uh, like Haunted Mansion. I was just wondering, are you a cinema uh, you know, fan yourself? Are you a cinema goer? Oh, yeah. I mean, come on, cinema. <laughs> yes, I'm a cinema fan. I think if you're making movies that you're not, what is, I don't know what <laughs> level of masochism <laughs> has brought you to that career. But ever since I was little, there's something about the projected image. Um, particularly on a big screen that has just completely captivated my attention. And I've been obsessed with making the things that go in it since I was a little kid. So huge, huge cinema goer. There's nothing like it. It's, it's like the most exciting thing we've come up with yet as an art form, I think. It's still an event, isn't it? And it's an event that you can go to sort of any day of the week on your yes. own time, which is kind of nice. <laughs> and it's magical because it, you, even, even seeing the same movie um, more than once, seeing it in the theater with different with different audience members, laughing at different parts, or being affected by different parts, it totally changes the movie that sort of materializes in front of you. It's it's really an amazing thing. Awesome. It sounds like we'll get on, which is great. <laughs> uh, when you're what working, it's like I hate. <laughs> Some people say, that, "Oh, I, I don't have time. Cinema. I'm too busy." But it sounds like you're a movie fan, which is awesome. Oh, of course. Uh, when you're making something like Haunted Mansion, you know, do you? At what point do you start to think about that audience? You know, and, and maybe mm. what will respond? You know, what will get a response, whether it be a scare or a laugh? You know, uh, I start to think about them a lot sooner than I used to <laughs> when I was <laughs> when I was sort of making you know independent movies and just having to go, go, go. It was important for me to get my vision out and for people to see me and for me to make the movie I wanted to make. With something like Haunted Mansion, and certainly this is something I, I really had to develop doing television, the audience is actually like one of the most important uh, factors of it because they're going to co-create the movie with you. They're What they expect to see, where they think the story is going, if they're deep fans of the material, what they're, you know, hoping uh, they'll catch, and if they catch, will they, re you know, will they recognize it and feel good about it, feel good about its adaptation. You have to kind of constantly keep them in mind. I sort of, you know, I, I try to create, like, little characters out of who I imagine my audience to be and imagine them watching certain parts. But then, you know, at the end of the movie... At least for me, it's become really important to test it and, mm -hmm. and to actually get feedback because at a certain point, those aren't imaginary people. Those are real people. And as much as I, I love making things for myself and I have a creative vision that I'm trying to fulfill, if it doesn't communicate to the audience, if it doesn't translate, um, I don't feel quite as good about what I've made. I, I just, uh, I've always, I've, I've always been a little bit of a carny or an entertainer <laughs> in that way. Like I want people to, to, to get, to pick up what I'm putting down. What's it like going to those test screenings? Are you sort of, uh, you, do you sit in the audience? Do you sit behind, you know, some like one-way glass? And no, I, I sit, I, I usually sit in the back and, and, and usually people don't know who I am. Uh, and I have to say, I, the first movie I tested was my first movie, Dear White People, mm. which was um, quite controversial then and probably is still now in some circles. And I got to say, 
testing a movie like that, um, there's very little that I'm afraid to hear. <laughs> you know, I've had some pretty intense negative and positive reactions uh, out of my first early test screenings and saw how those reactions translated to general audiences through the mm -hmm. process. So at that phase, like, I, I want to hear it. I want to know what's, what people are bumping on. I think it's, um, I don't know how to quite do the job without that part. No, I think you need honest feedback, don't you, to influence you to have the best film possible. Yeah, and usually the the you don't get the honest feedback unless they don't know you're who you are <laughs> or that you're there. They have no reason to be nice to you. Uh, and, and boy, oh boy, test audiences are got no problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to see this in a nice packed screen, and nice. my audience had a great time. <laughs> great audience, that's awesome. Uh, ours did too. Incidentally, this was the most pleasant movie to test of all the ones I've made. I got to say. <laughs> There's a lot going on in the film, but but really, I think for me, the cast are so charismatic and they're yeah. so good together. How did you uh, you know assemble your your lead players for this movie? Well, they came together in a very typical Hollywood fashion, you know. But I will say that uh, Lakeith Stanfield was somebody that I came into this process really wanting and really feeling like one, the lead should be uh, black because we're, this movie takes place in New Orleans and I wanted to do right by that city. Uh, but two, it needed somebody who kind of has that magic ability to make you care almost instantly about mm -hmm. them. And whether Lakeith is like playing comedy in Atlanta or he's playing horror in Get Out or like just straightforward like political drama in Judas and the Black Messiah, you just want to take care of him. No matter how reprehensible the character acts, no matter whether or not you can even understand what he's saying at times in Atlanta, you just want to give this guy a hug. And, and I needed that quick, fast connection with the audience uh, for his journey to work. So he he was a big one. Uh, the rest of the cast is a, co a collaboration with the studio and an amazing casting director named Carmen Cuba. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of conversation and stuff. But when you're casting at a studio, you don't really have a chance to meet or audition people. Like, you just have to sort of, like, kind of pick from a list and, and make everybody happy. Mm -hmm. And then once they're in there, it's about creating that creative space allowing them space to bond and to be themselves and mm. to bring their own sort of, you know, tool bag uh, to the process and make the characters their own. I guess, you know, you, you maybe, uh, you know how they are because you've seen them in other films, but you've not seen them together. Exactly. So, yeah. And you've not seen them as people because mm. a performance is not the same as a person. And for me, process is... Very, very important, especially with an ensemble. So you, you just hope that these performances translate to great people that are fun to work with. And uh, luckily, this really did. <laughs> I got to say, I got so lucky. There were no divas. It was all love uh, on this set. What's it like when you have them all actually in the same scene together? Because you know, as the film goes on, you, there's a lot of shared space. Magical. Uh, <laughs> it, it's both like herding cats, you know, because everyone's got, like, literally everyone has ADHD because we're all, like, in entertainment, <laughs> first of all. So we're all, like, you know, everyone's in their own little world, and everyone's brilliant in their own little world, but we all need to be in the same world. So that's the first part. But then when we get everybody in the same frequency, you could kind of live in there forever, you know? Um, that, that's the magic of a great ensemble cast. It's when everyone is there to support the story uh, more so than just their own performance. Mm. Uh, and, and that's really where magic happens. I, I learned how to direct doing theater, and and that I, I never have gotten over that kind of experience, that communal experience when, when people are firing all cylinders and, and sort of sharing space like that. Well, Haunted Mansion does have a theatrical, you know, sort of edge to it. You could imagine this as a stage show. Yes, uh, of course. You know, with lots of physical sort of you know, props and, and, and things. Uh, did, did the actors have, you know, things to respond to on set? Yeah, it was critical for this to be a practical forward movie. Um, obviously, we are using digital effects, and there, are, of course, are some green screen effects and all that kind of stuff, but I felt really strongly that uh, we should make this movie as close to how we would have had to make it in 1968. You know, uh, that is where the ride comes from and it's why the ride remains so effective because it is using these old school practical effects that even though you know mm -hmm. there's not really a ghost in there and there's not really Walter spinning it feels so physical it feels so tactile and that's because they're using Pepper's ghost and they're using these things that they're using literal smoke and mirrors <laughs> and these are things that have worked on audiences sitting just as close as you and I for you know decades since the beginning of cinema since before cinema um, and, and it was so important to have that tactile feel that even, even effects that we know are impossible to do practically, to do as much practically mm -hmm. as we could 
before the digital takeover, to have people actually responding to a ghost in front of them or to being dragged out of a house at you know full speed uh, <laughs> on, a, on a flying chair. Like all of these things, uh, it meant so much to me to make them real experiences to, to capture on camera. I think as an audience member, it feels like there's enough going on on set for any digital sort of additions to yes. just feel quite natural, actually. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I didn't want you to quite know where the thread was, you know, mm. where the real and the, and the unreal sort of blend. I think that that's a, that's a good use of Uncanny Valley. <laughs> <laughs> I guess from your side, uh, what is it like um, you know, actually doing the digital side of things? You know, do, you, do you know exactly how everything's going to look when you're on set? or you know, Is that still being worked on whilst you're shooting? Uh, it's still being worked on. And I got to say, the digital side of it, I think, is kind of boring, <laughs> if I'm being completely honest. Because then you're kind of in iteration territory. Mm. I, I imagine it's it's a lot more fun for the visual artist sort of working away at, you know, their computer. But by the time, you know, I look at an effect, uh, you, you I've given a lot of information. Uh, in my case, there's there's a lot that's already happening in camera. And then the rest is sort of like refining it, mm. you know? You know what I mean? Like just sort of watching it literally over and over again for days and months and just tweaking pixel by pixel, you know, a little bit. So it, it, it's, I, I have way more fun doing things in camera uh, because one, it's just so weird how you pull this stuff off. Uh, and there's always something that goes wrong or there's always like a, a happy surprise. It's like, oh, oh wait, do it that way, that way, that way, that way. Um, there's just something, there's something like putting on a magic show about practical effects that I really, I really love. And, and I always have that gasp when it comes together in the digital realm, but I just don't quite have as much fun putting them together there. I can imagine that. You yeah. know, it's probably a bit more uh, the, the process is probably longer, isn't it? Yeah, sort of you're and... a little bit more of a manager <laughs> at that point of a bunch of different other people doing the cool stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I always think when you, you first you know watch a film back and you hear things like the score added and the sound effects, mm. that feels like a magic trick. Yes. It must be the same with the digital effects as well and all oh, of those absolutely. things. Absolutely. And, and the digital effects, the color is a big thing, the sound, all of that stuff, it's like, oh, thank God. You know, because you're just, as a director, you've got to hold all that in your imagination for as long as possible mm. uh, until, you know, you get a, you can communicate it to a team of people to bring it to life. And so as each of those elements come out, you, you're like, oh, okay, my brain can stop holding all of that in my <laughs> imagination. This is actually what it is, and, and now we have something to work with and, and work off of. So, uh, yeah, that's always a, a beautiful moment. Releasing that pressure valve. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, because it does take energy. You don't even realize how much energy it takes mm. until until it's actually done, you know, just have, holding it in your imagination. I have that feeling when I'm going to the shops and I need to remember more than, like, three things to buy. Yes, yeah, same. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I'm the worst about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the film's got a really nice tone. You know, it is scary. It's also really funny. And it, it does, you know, it's for the family, the whole family, from you know, little ones to, to slightly older ones. How, how did you find that right balance? Because you know, there's, I guess, a danger that this you know, could not be scary at all or it yeah. could be really scary. Yes. You know? Well, I had a lot of help. I mean, first of all, it's based on this amazing ride where they had this same conundrum. If you go back and, and look at the correspondence between Walt Disney and his Imagineers in the 60s, they were equally as flummoxed about should it be actually scary? Should it be funny? Should it be for kids? Should it be for adults? And they landed on basically yes, all of the above. And I think that's why it's so enduring. And then you have Katie Dippel, the screenwriter, mm. who is wonderful. And she comes from the Melissa McCartney camp and, and is hysterical on the page, but she also knows how to tell a real human story with pathos and was obviously inspired by things like Poltergeist and, and Ghostbusters and even Robert Weiss's original The Haunting. And so they had already, between Katie and Walt Disney and his Imagineers, a lot had already been figured out in terms of setting the tone. I, as a director, am already attracted to these kinds of hybrid tones. Uh, mm -hmm. Everything I, I make sort of lives in between genres, and that's the stuff that I was attracted to. So it was really about protecting that tone and realizing the tone rather than sort of building it from scratch. And um, having had some experience both doing ensemble comedy work with my first film, but also doing just horror camp with my mm -hmm. second film, I felt like I had the skill set and the instincts to essentially just like, you know, be a shepherd of all of those intentions uh, from the written page, you know, into realizing it as a movie. It must be quite good at bringing all those learnings as well from, from you know, all of those different experiences yeah. uh, into you know, the biggest canvas you've had to work on to date. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's why you do it. You know, it's like I, I knew going into this, this is not necessarily going to be like that Artur thing. It's sort of like 
Um, I'm going to move into this as a collaboration with a lot of different folks. Mm. But in doing so, I get to play in this huge sandbox that has never really been, I've never had that opportunity before. Uh, So that was magnificent to know that like, yeah, I have enough tools and and tricks and and, and games and ideas to fill such a large sandbox. You know, kind of addictive as well. Uh, but we'll, we'll see how that all nets out in the future. Awesome. Well, we're so excited to play this on the big screen with audiences. So yes. thank you. Yes. Uh, you know, for and it was made for the big screen. Everything from the cameras, you know, especially the lenses, we shot, yeah. you know, on a wider format. And Jeffrey Waldron, my DP, uh, he, we designed original lenses uh, so that they, uh, when you're in the ghost realms and when you're kind of stuck inside otherwise claustrophobic spaces, there's this sort of like spread that kind of starts to to happen uh, to the frame and again that is not digital that is in camera that's us using uh lenses and old school tricks to to make this thing as cinematic as possible it does have this timeless quality to it yeah um, yeah but yeah it plays absolute, so well with the crowd yes it does that's <laughs> absolutely what we were going for awesome well thank you so much thank you yeah of course Next, another film coming to cinemas from the 4th of August. Uh, a wonderful new film from director Alice Winokur. Uh, you may have seen her previous film, Proxima, at Picture Cinemas a couple of years ago. Alice Winokur is back with a brand new movie called Paris Memories. effacé de ma mémoire. Qu'est-ce qui s'est passé après Le matin, très tôt, j'ai reçu un appel de l'hôpital. Tu avais été transporté, tu étais blessé, je suis venu te voir. Je suis passé dans la rue du restaurant, il y avait des fleurs et plein de dessins d'enfants. C'était comme un couloir dans lequel les gens défilaient. Est-ce que vous pouvez vous asseoir ailleurs C'est là où mes parents étaient assis. Vous vous souvenez de moi Qu'est-ce que vous faites ici, vous 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 êtes précipité dans les toilettes au premier coup de feu et vous n'avez pas ouvert. J'ai, j'ai pas fait ça. Il paraît que vous vous souvenez de tout ce qui s'est passé. Pourquoi vous voulez vous souvenir J'aimerais bien retourner au musée où ils ont été. Pour la dernière chose qu'ils ont vue. J'ai l'impression de leur dire au revoir. What was your reaction to Paris Memories Well, I missed this one in Cannes, although I'm a big fan of the filmmaker Alice Winokur's previous film, Mustang. And I uh, genuinely did not know what to expect with this one. And essentially, it's a story of a woman, uh, a translator who lives in Paris and is, you know, sees herself be a part of a terrorist attack in a restaurant. Um, She comes out unscathed physically for the most part, but the rest of the film, this happens really, really early on, kind of in the first five, seven minutes. So it is the entire premise, not, not so much a spoiler. The rest of the movie, it is her trying to piece together exactly what happened and what was her reaction in the moment. Uh, and also connecting with other survivors from the terrorist incident, as well as, and this is the thing that I found really profound about the film, is reconnecting with the city where she lives. You know, it explores the aftershock of any traumatic event of that sort, but this lingering fear and an ease that suddenly Paris gets after this attack and how it completely changes her relationship with, you know, with her house, with her partner, with the city in which she lives and how she moves around different spaces. Um, I found that to be the most intriguing element of the film. Yeah. I didn't know anything about the movie before I started watching it, which is a, is <laughs> It's such a rare experience because I feel like most of the time when we watch a movie, we have a sense of what it is and, you know, how it's been received and what Mm -hmm. people, you know, there's so many things that we go in preloaded for in a movie. And for this movie in particular, you know, I was watching it and the title seems almost, uh, the title seems almost like it could be a, a, a title for a very sweet and maybe even a very dull movie. It almost is, I think it's a great title for what the movie actually is, but I was sort of lulled into a sense of 
security. So when the actual first gunshot rings out, I knew I had a sense something was going to happen, you know, but I didn't have that dread. And when that scene happened, it viscerally was shocking to me that that I jumped at the first, and I had that sense of panic. Another thing I thought this movie did really well is most of the movie is, you know, one person's perspective. It's sort of most of the movie is is from her main, the main character's point of view. But every now and then it pulls out to someone else, you know, or to the larger picture of all the other people who were there. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's almost like the the film is in close-up, but every now and then it just pulls far out and sees this was a, you know, you see the whole city. You see, like, the way that this... And I had a very grim thought at one point during the movie because, you know, obviously living in America where these kinds of events are uh, shockingly frequent Mm -hmm. to the point where there are times when something like this happens and people don't even have time to process it before the next one happens in Mm -hmm. some other city. And I think that this film, the way that they express the way a person processes trauma is really, it really puts you in in that mood as a viewer. You really, it really makes you feel it. All right, folks. I've really enjoyed hearing Anna and Connor uh, discuss these movies. It's always nice to hear two, like I've, I've heard their voices separately, but never together. And I, I quite like uh, yeah, hearing the magic uh, of, of two new people talking about cinema. It's very infectious. Their enthusiasm's wonderful. And, uh, and yeah, we're on to our final film now. We are on to Theatre Camp, which uh, it stars Ben Platt, uh, Molly Gordon. It opened in the US a few weeks ago, did really well from a quite a limited opening and, and word of mouth was so strong. It's coming to Picture House Cinemas on the 25th of August, something for the end of the month. Uh, I haven't seen this one yet, uh, but it sounds really delightful. Can't wait to hear what Connor and Anna make of it. What up, Adirondacks? Listen up. Squad, gang, maybe, uh, zip it. Could we just get you guys to shoot? Oh, what a beautiful... Dope. Welcome, auditioners. You guys are so talented, so unbelievable. This will break you. This will fully destroy you. Congratulations on being the most talented kids at camp. Starfish, starfish, jiggle like a jackal, jiggle like a jackal. These are the things we can do with masks. These people are really weird. I have seen the trailer for Theater Camp, and it's it is on my list of things that I really want to see in a theater. Uh, what did you think of it? Well, I think to your point earlier about seeing comedies in a in a theater as opposed to at home, I I saw and loved Theater Camp watching it by myself in my in my living room during the Sundance London screen uh, Sundance screening. So I was watching Sundance movies. Mm-hmm from London internationally and I cannot wait to see it again in a full movie screen. I found it to be deeply funny. It is essentially a you know Christopher Guest style mockumentary comedy about yeah. a theater camp operated by a very very intense owner played by um Amy Sedaris who falls into some poor health and then the camp gets inherited by her himbo YouTuber crypto bro son and who has to deal with all the financial issues that the camp is suffering with and at the heart of the movie is also the relationship between the um, sort of camp counselors who are all aspiring performers, uh, all very, you know, big theater kid, musical theater energy emanating from all of them. And uh, also the kids who are attending the camp and really taking the performances that are going to put on the shows that they're working on as part of their summer there extremely seriously. Um, So it is a very, very funny movie with a ton of really stellar performances, you know, including Ayu Edibiri, who's, you know, we're seeing in The Bear now. Also Molly Gordon, who's actually 
one of the writers and the co-director of the film also now on the bear um and it has quite impeccable i'd say timing uh i mentioned before that it really kind of reminded me of the christopher guest mockumentaries of uh of well, now a number of years ago, you know, like Best in Show or This is Spinal Tap um, and the the whole kind of roster of comedies that he made. And this one doesn't miss a ba- beat like the like those films as well that I mentioned. So I think it is very much um, a flavor of comedy. Um, but one thing that I really like is that it definitely does not mock its characters there is no snarkiness here Mm -hmm. you know the theater camp as a concept or kind of theater kids and that very intense sincerity that they're operating from is never just made fun of for the sake of bullying or pointing their finger at these characters that they consider to be beneath them as opposed to i think there's a lot of love and a lot of care coming from the filmmakers towards the characters that they're representing and that really shines through in the performances as well it's a very unpretentious unsnarky comedy oh that's great to hear yeah i everything that i've seen and read about it has uh, given me the sense that i'm gonna like it but i just haven't gotten around to seeing it yet so it's on my list Okay, well, there we go. Those are our film reviews for fab new films coming to your local cinema. And also, don't forget Haunted Mansion uh, with our special guest, Justin Simeon. Uh, So those are the new release slate. Um, But as is tradition, when we have our guest critics together, we love to ask them what's still on in cinemas that they would recommend and what they're looking forward to seeing later in the year. Connor, is there anything that's still showing in cinemas that you think people should check out or that you'd recommend? I I don't know how long it's going to remain in cinemas, but um, I really enjoyed Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Not a perfect film by any means. There are certainly a moment in the first 25 minutes where uh, I had a feeling of like, is this what the movie is going to be? Because there's some weird de-aging stuff. But there is... There's a moment around the maybe four-fifths, two-thirds mark in the movie where normally you realize most movies, you kind of know where they're going by the final third. Even if there's a twist coming, that's sort of a thing that that we're sort of braced for. There was a moment in this movie where I genuinely had a feeling of wonder because I had no idea where the movie was going to go. And then it went someplace, and I still spent about a solid five minutes feeling something that I hadn't felt in a while in a a big movie like this, which is what are they about to do? Like what is about to happen in this movie? And even if I, I mean, I did like the movie overall, but even if I hadn't liked the movie, I think I would recommend it just for that feeling Um, because it's such a, such a rare thing. I'm rarely surprised Uh, even in films that I really like. They'll kind of, there's nothing that shocks me. And I genuinely was shocked by something. Mm. What's something that you've seen recently that uh, you would recommend? Well, I, again, similarly to it, don't know how long this is going to be in cinemas in the UK. But if not, I think it will be on movie on the streaming service movie really soon afterwards. Is Davy Chow's Return to Seoul, uh, which is about a young woman uh, of Korean descent who has been raised in France going to Seoul and trying to reconnect with her birth parents and everything that happens after that. And I'm really drawn to it as an exploration of a sense of belonging. Uh, And I don't think that it's a perfect film, but I think what it's trying to go for is so interesting and so thorny that even the attempt of it is, is something really to to witness and I think particularly with any other film perhaps it would have kind of fallen a little bit flat with just that concept with just that plot but it's this perform the central performance by Jimin Park as the lead character as Freddie who is this French woman um, Korean French woman is so magnetic and so absolutely fearless and as far as I know it's also her first ever on-screen role anywhere uh so that makes it doubly impressive and connor what film are you most looking forward to seeing in the near future 
Probably the new Scorsese film, which I keep in my mm-hmm. mind. I keep uh, saying I think I say the title wrong fifty percent of the time. It's Killers of the Flower Moon, right? Yes, I'm getting it right. I think so. I keep saying Flowers of the Killer Moon, <laughs> and then I keep thinking of that fake movie in Ghost World that they t- keep talking about. Have you seen the flower that drank the moon? <laughs> yeah, which is like the movie within the movie. I keep getting, um, but uh, I'm I'm. You know, reading about them making this movie for a while, and then when the first trailer came out, uh, it was not what I was expecting. Um, mm-hmm. This is sort of like Scorsese making a western, but it's a western that, uh, rather than being in the old, you know, the older Hollywood tradition, it's reckoning with the damage that you know was done to Native American people by the the encroach of people who wanted to make money off the land. So it's just like these white money men coming to plunder and it feels like um while it's in keeping with the tradition of you know scorsese's you know organized crime movies this is like this is the original american organized crime which is people coming in and taking from the people who are already here i hope it's going to be great i've seen it can guarantee that it's great it's also coming out at a time when a lot of like right wingers in America are trying to uh, rewrite the way the ugliest parts of American history are oh. taught to kids. So I think the more movies that actually tell the truth about what America has been, I think the better. Amazing. Uh, what's something you're looking forward to, Anna? So this is this is actually a film I've seen, but I I can't wait for it to come out in cinemas and for more people to see it. And it's Celine Song's Past Lives. I've seen this film twice now, and honestly, it gets better. I fell even harder in love with the film on the second watch of it. So I can't wait for more people to experience it in cinemas. And it is, you know, similarly to Return to Soul, it's a film that explores kind of the the sense of belonging or unbelonging of a, in this case, a Korean-Canadian immigrant. So this is who very randomly reconnects with her childhood sweetheart who stayed in Korea after um, the protagonist, Nora, who's played by Greta Lee, emigrates to Canada and then moves as an adult to New York to pursue writing. And Everything that happens afterwards, I don't really want to talk too much about because I think there's such beauty in letting the story and the characters' relationships to one another unfold as you're watching the film. But it is truly one of the most really stunning debuts that I've seen in many years and just such nuanced relationships, you know, not particularly dramatic, but really rich in emotion, really rich in nuance and kind of theatrical. You know, Celine Song, this is her first ever film. She doesn't come for short films at all. She's a playwright. There is some some theatricality to the way she writes her characters, but that does not feel unnatural, does not feel fake or forced at all. It is just this really poignant exploration of so many things that happen uh, around the immigrant experience that aren't necessarily just these high dramatic stories of, you know, people leaving their country in disarray. Actually, a lot of the times it is just putting together a ton of forms to get through the immigration section of any airport in the world. But it's, but, you know, the film is really interested in what happens after that. Ah, I gotta check it out. So, Anna, where can people find you online? Oh, thanks, Connor. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnaBeDemented. I usually post all the work that I'm doing or putting out there. You can also buy my book, Unlikable Female Characters, Women Pop Culture Wants You to Hate, anywhere they sell books. It's out in the US and in the UK now. And you can also listen to my horror film history podcast, The Final Girls, wherever you find your podcasts. Great. And Connor, what about yourself? Where can people find your work online? Um, usually on you know whatever social media exists at any given moment. I'm usually at Connor Ratliff. My podcast is called Dead Eyes, uh, and it's uh, 31 episodes of me sort of unpacking failure and rejection uh, in a very specific way. Um, I, I've got a, a few shows. I'm going to be in Edinburgh at the Festival Fringe uh, in August, uh, when this is released. 
Basically, I have a show I do called the George Lucas Talk Show, where I pretend to be retired filmmaker George Lucas and talk to real guests as themselves. And we are also we're bringing the show over from New York. It's been running for almost a decade here. And uh, we're also premiering uh, a George Lucas talk show original play that I've written called The Baron and the Junk Dealer, uh, which stars me and Griffin Newman uh, as two unnamed characters who are stranded on a desolate planet. And uh, and there are um, subtle uh, uh, and not-so-subtle connections to the world of George Lucas, but it is the kind of play that is for fans and non-fans alike, as is the George Lucas talk show. A lot of, our, a lot of the people who are longtime fans of the show have never seen a Star Wars movie, and they just like watching the George Lucas talk show for the weird little world that we've created. Uh, so we'll be doing those. I'll also be doing, at the end of the month, uh, for one-person improvised shows as George Lucas called George Prov. I love it. I'm going to be in Edinburgh during August, so I'll make sure to check you out. Oh, great. Looking forward to meeting you in real life. And that brings us to the end of another edition of The Love of Cinema. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, really appreciate that. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate on your podcatcher of choice. It all helps, it all makes a difference uh, to the uh, the podcast algorithm, as it were. Recommend the show to your friends, post it on your social media channels. All of that stuff is a big support to the podcast. Also, an equally big thank you to our special guest critics, Anna Bogutskaya and Connor Ratliff. Uh, you heard their plugs a minute ago, but please highly recommend checking out Anna's book if you've enjoyed her appearance on this podcast or just a fan of movies in general. You will enjoy that book. And Connor, I mean, listen to Dead Eyes. It's such a fantastic podcast. Uh, But also, if you're in Edinburgh, do check out Connor's show. In fact, if you're in Edinburgh, on the 20th of August, Connor is going to be doing a show with me at the Cameo Picture House in uh, in Edinburgh. We're going to be showing a double bill of uh, Froggy Evening and Koya Neskatsi in a double bill under my my guise of the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest podcast. Uh, Both films under 90 minutes long. We're going to do a double bill. We're going to have a chat. It's going to be great. That's the 20th of August there's a link in the show notes to that as always the show is produced by Kobe Omanaka uh, produced by Stripped Media thank you so much for all of your help Kobe and uh, and yeah I think that just about brings us to the end of this podcast we'll be back in September with another monthly review show we're going to have an two new guest film critics uh, to discuss our movies but do subscribe to the feed we might have a couple of little special podcasts to drop uh, in the interim if a filmmaker is around uh, and they're up for having a chat with us we'll we'll have a, a chat at one of our cinemas and we'll uh, we'll put it into the feed as a bonus app uh, so keep an eye out for that in fact as you're listening to this our most recent bonus app is with the directors of talk to me uh, which is still on in cinemas it's a really great horror movie uh, so see the film listen to the podcast if you can um and for all things like listings and news etc uh, we're at picture houses on all social media channels and you can check listings at picturehouses.com that's a wrap on august thank you so much we'll see you next month <laughs>